This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Jeff Farrow, CFO of GDT, and you are listening to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 475. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. When Buck Phillips, CFO of G1 Therapeutics, was back in high school, his father shared some advice. Son, always make sure you're the guy whose hand is closest to the cash register or cash flow. That way... You'll always have the opportunity to add the most value. That advice apparently struck a chord. Buck Phillips explains after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Always, uh, we begin by asking our guests to look backwards and 
try to zero in on those experiences that they feel really helped uh, advance them or influence their thinking about finance. What would you share with us? What were those experiences? Gosh, it's a, it's a great question, and I think, you know, I'd, I'd look, uh, I was thinking a little bit about this, and I look all the way back to when I was a young man, and I was um, um, thinking about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go, and I think I had, I had an early job somewhere in high school, and I was sitting with my father, who at the time was a stockbroker, and I was talking about my new, my first job, and where, you know, I was really excited, right, because I was proud I had this first job and where I was going and where I was going to take it. We had this long conversation, and my, I remember my father saying, son, always make sure you always want to be the guy whose hand is closest to the cash register or the cash flow. That's the person, that's the, the individual in the company that's always going to add the most value, always going to have the opportunity to add the most value and build. And that really registered with me. And I think, um, you know, I took that forward in, in how I went forward in life and, you know, studied some economics in college and, and ultimately went to Wall Street where I started my career um, uh, as a, a over-the-counter stock trader. So it always that always rung a bell with me, finance uh, and, and being close to the cash flow is where the decisions are made. And now you've been, you've had several tours of duty as a, as a CFO, um, and I'm curious about, what were the leadership experiences, perhaps? How did you emerge as a leader? Well, I think um, I have had the great privilege of working at a number of really interesting companies, trying to do, frankly, really big things. When you think about what we try and do in, in the life sciences industry, be it biotech or even the pharmaceutical industry, when you think about what we're really trying to do, you know, using some protein or some piece of chemistry to influence how the body repairs itself or addresses an infection by a foreign a foreign organism. Um, these are these are huge things, and I think what I've learned in in my role here with these three companies and all the great people I've had to work with is, you know, it's one thing to think about the dollars and cents and, and you know, are, are we approving payments correctly? And it's a whole other thing to think at a higher level and say, you know, what is our science ultimately going to deliver? And, and that's benefits to patients, their families, and the healthcare industry. And when we start thinking a little bit about it that way, then all of a sudden we take on a larger perspective of what we're really trying to accomplish and not a myopic perspective on, gee, I'm just here to make sure we protect the dollars and cents and count the pennies, nickels, and dimes. And I think that's where you start to become a leader, is when you see the whole perspective. You understand what each person in the organization is trying to accomplish to work with them and not against them. Um, I, think that's, I think that's been something that's helped me become a leader. At the end of this, I would say that I've learned that in my role in finance, my job is to enable the people in my organization to deliver on what we want to do as a company. I need to help my scientists at the bench get the tools they need, the, rea the reagents they need, and the resources they need to conduct the study that gives us the understanding of biology that will allow us to help people in the future. So my job is to enable them and not to take the perspective that I'm here to prohibit you from spending too much money. 
um, let's let's think it through together and spend it wisely. And what do you need to spend it wisely and get your job done? And I think that changed the whole dynamic of how I worked with people. I want to step back in your uh, down the career ladder here. And back in the '90s, you made a an investment of time of your career at a company in Vesco, where you were a biotech analyst and director of venture investments. And at the time, uh, you offered coverage of the entire uh, you know spectrum of publicly traded companies that were out there. But uh, so you had lines of sight into all of these companies and were expected to know what's going on, if I'm not overstating that. What occurs to me is you could have gone a number of different directions. You weren't necessarily going to become a CFO, which you certainly are today after three tours of duty. And, and, and you know, wouldn't be surprised in five or ten years we find you here as well in the finance realm. But take us back and tell us a little bit about what that experience you know, provided you with. And I think it's really maybe the foundation uh, of, of this career. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But tell us about that experience and why that was important to where you're, you are today. Yeah, you know, thank you for asking about that because if I were to look back on my history, I would probably identify my, my, uh, my uh, experience with Investco as, as a key uh, foundation of everything that I've built from there. And I think, in, you know, Investco is a really interesting opportunity because I, I had spent some time as a, uh, you know, a retail stock broker at a, a local uh, uh, firm based in Denver. It was, uh, I was at Shearson Lehman Hutton for a little while. And I went over to Investco Funds Group, which is a really interesting little um, mutual fund company in Denver. They had about $1.2 billion under management at the time. Um, you know, I thought that was uh, the most money I've ever heard of in the world. And I actually went over there um, to support their customer service and help people with their mutual fund investments. And I got a break. I was just, I was a young man then. I had a lot of time. I spent a lot of extra time over there interfacing with senior people. And I would talk to the portfolio managers to make sure I understood what they were doing and what they were thinking so that when I communicated with investors, you know, I, I, I could make the right communication. And I got this opportunity, and I was added to the, um, the, the Life Sciences Fund team to help support that team in their investments in biotech, pharmaceutical, medical technologies, and, um, you know, medical services. And I got uh, added as a real junior individual, but I spent a lot of time working there. And I worked my way up in that organization um, um, supporting their venture investing group, uh, their venture investing uh, um, um, activities. And I specifically remember a situation where um, the team was really busy. We had a venture investment on our portfolio, and it was a private company that had been spun out by a public company. It was a development entity, and its, its sole purpose was to develop one specific um, therapeutic. And we had it on the books of our mutual fund company, and we always carried it at cost. And we needed to do an evaluation to make sure that was the right place to carry it, because we hadn't changed the valuation for about a year, and nobody was really looking at it. And I remember the portfolio manager said, hey, Buck, uh, I don't have time. Just take a look at this, do some work on this, and let me know what we, just give me your input on what you think we should do. So I went and took a look at 
private company, a warrant on the private company, and another very unique instrument that was defined as a sleeper warrant. And the sleeper warrant would come alive, let's say, it would awake at a certain point in time based on the development uh, milestones within the, the private entity and the, the stock price of the public entity that it was spun out of. So the sleeper warrant was a warrant on the parent company, which was a public company, not on the private company. And I don't think anybody in our group had ever identified that. So I created a mathematical algorithm that identified uh, the milestones that needed to be achieved for that warrant to awake and uh, uh, relative to the stock price of the public entity. And it turned out, uh, after testing this algorithm, that um, we had the ability to take a significant markup on the position. And I remember the day I had to present this uh, finding to our evaluation committee, which was the executives of the mutual fund company, not the necessarily the investment team. And I was scared to death. And I thought, oh, man, I, I, I know I did my work. I was really scared. And at the end of this, you know, I, one of them said, that's great work, Buck. We need more of that kind of work. And I remember right there, that was the moment. I said, I want to do this. I want to do this kind of great work. Um, and, and this was really an exciting revelation for me that I could do this. I could add value, and people really appreciated it. And for me, that was a catalyst. And that actually uh, was the basis for me moving up in that organization, ultimately to being a biotechnology analyst for investment funds for Beta Denver and also uh, being um, senior director of venture investments. We carried a venture portfolio of life sciences investments in the same fund with a cost base of about $100 million every year. So it was a, a very, very exciting time and, and a great learning experience. That was, that was the platform and the catapult for everything. Now, it, it's not uncommon for uh, someone in one of those uh, positions overseeing portfolios to jump into a, a startup or jump to a, a new opportunity where they take, you know, they enter the C-suite. At the same time, suddenly it's, it's, it's a different environment with different uh, or organizational dynamics. Was that decision hard to make or was it the obvious next move for someone with your experience and, and background? You know, I think my career path, Jack, has been a series of uh, un, uh, unplanned and unforeseen um, opportunities that just kind of came to me. And I think it's fair to say when they when they came to me, I wasn't really, I didn't really recognize the opportunity at first. The move from the from being on the investing side of the equation of the financial, the, the, the life sciences finance uh, world to being uh, inside a company or on what we say on the operating side as a finance professional, actually came um, uh, in, in the context of a company I was on the board of. Uh, one of our investments in a prior in, in, in a prior life, the, cur the uh, entity I went to after Invesco was a venture fund called Vector Fund Management out of Chicago, and we did late-stage life sciences and venture investing there. And I had worked with a bunch of really good people to create a, a, an interesting new company in San Diego. We called it CancerVex at the time, um, and so I joined the board there. Long story short, CancerVex, um, you know, did its development. It didn't work out. Uh, we ended up having to merge it with another entity. I stayed on the board of the merged entity, and um, that merged entity needed to raise some money. And we couldn't find a CFO to step into the role. 
And I distinctly remember I was doing the search for a CFO for the board, and I got a call, and on the other end of the phone was, was the chairman of the company, a guy named David Hale, who's well-known to industry, and the CEO of the company, um, Christian Eisen, who uh, is a very good friend of mine, and, and we work well together. Um, and they said, hey, Buck, we really got to fill this CFO role. And I said, guys, I know I'm working on it. We just can't find anybody um, that's willing to fill this right now. It was a transatlantic entity, so offices in Maryland, but the operations in Munich, Germany. So a CFO had to go back and forth quite a bit and be comfortable with operating the financials of a, of a foreign entity as well. And they said, listen, we can think a lot about this, and we think you should take the job. And this is one of those moments. I, it, in the back of my mind, I, I said, you guys are nuts. And I pulled out the job profile, and it said, guys, it says we need somebody that's got five to ten years of life sciences, public company, CFO experience. I said, I don't have any of that. And David said, Buck, I know you don't, but you know what you do have? you got a lot of Wall Street experience. You know everybody on Wall Street. You know how to raise money. And that's what this company needs in a CFO, so we want you to take the job. And I said, okay. And that was, that, that was one of those moments. Uh, it was a complete and total change of direction in my career path. It came to me without expectation, um, and, um, and um, that's now resulted in uh, that was Micromet at the time. Uh, I spent four and a half years as CFO of Micromet. We sold it to Amgen. Then four, four plus years uh, CFO at Novavax up in Davidsburg, Maryland, and now about uh, a year and a half here at G1 as CFO. So that was that was one of those moments. What was it after uh, what you just related that chain of career building success over time that you enjoyed? To open yet another chapter, what was it that led you to G1? And, and tell us a little bit about its offerings, uh, if you would. I think I'd start by saying I wasn't, here's another situation where I wasn't looking for a job. But this came to me. I think I was at Novavax, I was a CFO there, working with great people, doing great things in the world of vaccines, really trying to um, solve some big problems up there. And I got a call from one of my old friends, um, uh, a gentleman who was uh, the managing director of Vector Fund Management with me in Chicago and who subsequently had moved on. We both went our own way. And he called and he mentioned that there was an opportunity at G1. And I said, you know, uh, this guy's a very good friend of mine. His name's Doug Reed. He lives down here in North Carolina now. And I said, Doug, I'm not looking for a job. And he says, I know you're not, but but let me tell you a little bit about it, and, uh, and you know what, if nothing else, hear me out. And in all of these situations, I really like to make sure that I know who the people are first. In life sciences, the technology is critically important. Um, it's where the value comes, but it's the people in the organization that actually deliver that technology to the market. And it turned out that, um, you know, the CEO and the chairman and a couple of other people I had had relationships with in my prior life, working relationships. I knew them well, had a great deal of respect for them. And the pieces of that puzzle started to fit together. I knew it was a great group of people I could collaborate with and, and work well with. The technology, they were trying to do some really, really novel things. And here at G1, um, by protecting um, cancer patients from the myelosuppressive toxicity of chemotherapy, um, and a whole novel new mechanism uh, of action, um, you 
using a known uh, target uh, agent. And it was really small, Jack. This company, when I joined, was like 38 people. Um, Novavax was like 350. And I thought, man, that would be a really exciting opportunity to do something from, you know, the very early stages and really help build a company and put my stamp on it um, uh, based on my years of experience doing this. And so at the end of the day, it just felt right. There were some personal reasons, too. My wife, Melissa, and I had just become empty nesters. Uh, we had a daughter who was going to school down here in North Carolina, and my son happened to be based over at Fort Bragg and, uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, so we could get a little closer to them. So it just all worked out that way. Uh, we know better than to delve too deep into your world or the world of biopharmaceutical uh, offerings, uh, but give us the, the layman's summary of the work that G1 is is up to. Yeah, G1 is um, a very interesting little company. We're a clinical stage oncology company, and we have three drug candidates that are in human clinical trials today. They all represent multi-billion-dollar markets, and um, they all are targeting um, proven proven oncology targets, proven mechanisms of action. And the real novel uh, application of one of these targets is a product we call trilocyclin. And trilocyclin is a product that can be used in conjunction with chemotherapy to protect chemo patients from, from the toxicity of chemotherapy, uh, something known as myelosuppression, where chemotherapy actually does as much damage to certain components of the, of the individual's blood system as it does to, you know, uh, for the sake of this conversation, for the, tu for the tumor. And our job or the target of this therapy is to protect the, you know, the, uh, the hematopoietic system, which is the components of the blood, uh, and, and allow that patient to move forward in their chemotherapy treatment uh, and get the full benefit of chemotherapy. So very, very novel um, um, product. We also are working in uh, uh, our second product is called Lerocyclin. That's an oral CDK46 inhibitor product. There are a couple other 46s on the market currently. The lead product is one from Pfizer. It's called Ibrant, and that product is uh, probably at a run rate of about four and a half billion a year right now. It's a huge market opportunity, and we think Lerocyclin has some differentiating uh, characteristics that would allow us to be very competitive. And then we've got an earlier product called G1248, which targets the estrogen receptor uh, in breast cancer patients. Very novel stuff, very exciting place to be, and the opportunity to help uh, cancer patients uh, in multiple, you know, multiple different avenues to help cancer patients move forward. We'd like to understand better uh, maybe the different stages of financing inside the biopharmaceutical realm. We have in the past spoken to quite a few IT uh, technology uh, CFOs uh, who are in startup firms where every round of financing in a startup requires that the finance leader proves something new before proceeding to the next round of financing. And I, I'm curious uh, how you would explain to us the different stages. And again, in, in the uh, 
just a, in my way of thinking, the hijack realm. If it's the, the seed financing stage, that's where you, you sort of prove the market, the, excuse me, the, the product market fit. That's where you prove that. Series A is where you sort of prove the revenue model. And, and B is where uh, you, you prove you're getting renewals where customers are coming back, I suppose. Are, are the different stages inside this realm uh, similarly uh, able to be defined? Well, I think, um, you know, in many ways, not, not entirely dissimilar from um, you know, early stage technology funding, with the, the obvious but overriding recognition that we are developing products uh, to address the human condition, and that uh, these products are developed within a highly regulated framework. And, um, you know, we hear all the time about early stage drugs or early stage uh, development that shows some success, let's say, in an animal model. Um, you know, you might have a mouse model of a specific tumor type, and you might have uh, early chemistries that show some efficacy in that animal model in terms of controlling the growth of tumors. And so that may be the basis for for your early stage financing, let's call it a series A round. Um, um, and as you move up in the, di the different development stages of that product candidate, you can actually construct your financing rounds around those development stages. You know, the, the first stage of human clinical trials would come after you've done all that animal work other in vitro work, which is where you're working with, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, let's say analyses in petri dishes or other uh, forms of analyses. So you're not really in a human yet. We call that preclinical work. And that preclinical work would lead to an IND filing with the U.S. FDA. So an IND is an investigation of your drug where you'll describe all of the activities uh, that you've seen in the preclinical models and the safety of preclinical models. And the regulatory agencies will allow you to move forward into early safety testing in humans to identify, to, pr to demonstrate that the product is safe uh, first. Not even that it's efficacious in most cases, but that it's safe before you move into efficacy trials. And all these different stages of development are true catalysts for value inflection, depending on the success or failure in the stage, and points of uh, 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 they serve as points for additional rounds of financing. So, you know, after we file an IND, we do that phase one safety uh, and tolerability testing in most cases. In oncology, you can enroll um, uh, cancer patients in those phase ones and look for signals of efficacy. And once you get through phase one, you enroll in phase two, which is where you do more exploration with an, an, an identified dose of your drug in patients that have cancer and try and prove efficacy in certain um, smaller studies in certain patient populations. And when you identify the signal and get a robust readout in your phase ones, I'm sorry, phase twos, then you're likely to take that into a phase three clinical trial, which is also known as a pivotal clinical trial. And the results from that trial you file with the agency, with the FDA, as a, an, uh, an NDA or a new drug application, which would allow them to review the data 
and uh, opine on whether or not they would allow the uh, marginalization of that crime to include the passage of the MADA. All of those events allowed you to create catalysts for additional financing rounds and financing. Um, so I would put one big caveat down, the difference between tech and biotech, I think it's the development timeline, number one, and number two, the life cycle of the product post-approval and the barriers to entry post-approval. Um, you know, and this is generally speaking, in technology, the timeline to development of and launching of a product is relatively quick relative to biotech. In biotech, it could take us a decade and $800 million to a billion dollars to get a product to market. In tech, in most cases, it's a lot quicker, and in many cases, it's not nearly that much money. The flip side of the equation is that once you're on the market, a tech product has a certain life cycle that is much shorter than that of a therapeutic product coming out of pharma or biotech. And so your, your return period, your cash flow period prior to competition in tech is going to be typically a lot shorter than it would be in biotech or pharma um, because the hurdles to get the product to market are much, much higher in the regulatory framework, much higher in biotech. That may be too many words. I apologize if I'm taking up too much time, but it's important. Would G1 be perhaps uh, uh, raising money for G1? Is this the earliest stage company you've raised money for compared to the other tours of duty as a CFO? Is this perhaps earlier? Um, it's a great question. I haven't thought of it in that context. I think, I think the answer is they'd all be relatively similar. Um, uh, both Micromet and Novavax um, had some phase one data when I joined. Um, um, had actually completed a little bit of phase two work. But I think they were all in that truly informative position in their development stage where they, had, they were in phase two, clinical phase two clinical trials and trying to prove efficacy prior to moving into pivotal phase three. Frankly, uh, we, we sold Micromet to Amgen before we initiated phase three clinical trials based on the strengths of the phase twos. In at Novavax, we had completed highly successful phase twos and we moved into phase three clinical trials, uh, unfortunately one of which failed and, and the other phase three should read out for the company here. Uh, it's my understanding that it will be this quarter. You can confirm that with them. And then this company at G1, um, we were in phase two trials, and you know we've had some very successful readouts. And, and I think um, you know we'll see where the FDA will allow us to take these development plans going forward. But I think they were all relatively the same. And I may say that's appropriate for my profile of experience. I've always had, I've always been in the public markets, um, and I think my profile as a CFO. And the, with the ability to raise money in the public markets fits for those kind of companies. I want to ask now about from one company to the next. Uh, as the finance leader, you are also leading a team, sort of architecting the finance function. What would you, do? you know, what have you learned over time? Did you arrive at G1 and decide, you know, I think we can do this differently in terms of the roles, the people, and you know, what works best? 
what, anything you can share with us about building your team and, and that, that function? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it is fair to say that I've learned along the way. When I became the CFO of Micromet, it's not a job I'd ever done. Um, I am not an accountant. So I learn from and I defer to accountants. I make sure that we have very strong accounting people around me. And I've been extremely fortunate to have um, three very high-level, um, very experienced vice presidents of finance at Micromet, at Novavax, and here at G1. Um, you know, I think my real value add uh, when I come into these organizations um, is to help them think about growth. Everybody knows where they are today. The question is, where, am I, where is the company going with success in the next one year, two years, three years? And, and how do you handle yourself in those periods where, where um, you know, the company's um, going through more difficult times? And I think that's where I can add value and help these young companies and help the finance team. I do defer quite a bit to my accountants, my CPAs, on financial reporting and SEC reporting. Um, um, I'm heavily involved in every 10-K and 10-Q. Um, I'm heavily involved in variance analysis and understanding where the, where, how the company is living and breathing relative to its budget. But I think the place that I enjoy, the, the activities that I enjoy the most as a CFO uh, with regard to financials is the financial planning and analysis side of the business. I, uh, am, I really do enjoy and get a bit passionate about budgets, financial forecasts, tracking how we're, uh, we're actually executing to those budgets, um, those forecasts, being able to do contingent scenario analyses. I believe that the FP&A side of our business is where we can actually create learnings and create data that helps actually make decisions, helps the board and management drive decisions um, through financial information. Um, Financial reporting is critically important, and it's the core of what investors rely on to understand the financial performance of the company. But when we're making decisions on where to invest next, um, how long our cash runway is relative to our development decisions and options, um, that's really where the value add comes from a CFO and from a finance department in helping the board make the right decisions, helping the management make the right decisions. So I think it's all been about evolving FP&A and helping support our, our financial reporting piece to do the best job that they can do and to have the best tools that they can have, uh, that they have access to in doing their job. So you know, let me rest there, but, but uh, we can go on the FP&A side, which is where, where, where we, we really enjoy our job. Yeah, it sounds like you've gotten uh, more focused on FP&A, and maybe, maybe you, you see uh, where it might lead in the future, don't know. Are there pieces of the FP&A process you left behind? Are there, are, you said it was evolving, uh, and I'm wondering if there, you're doing things differently. There are things that FP&A uh, means to you today that it didn't uh, five, ten years ago. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the whole, uh, my whole um, um, FP&A focus actually comes from my years at Invesco when I was a financial analyst covering the industry. Um, and we would always build models and make sure we understood 
their burn rates, uh, you know, OPEX, SG&A, uh, R&D, what their future development plans were, were they expanding their clinical trials, meaning R&D is going up, how's, how's that, what's that going to mean to their financing requirements, and what does that mean to me as an investor in terms of the ultimate of the dilution I may suffer going forward. Um, so it comes from that, that history, and I think as I've moved through my career with Micromet, um, Micromet was a great platform for me to learn an awful lot. Um, at the time, my uh, director of finance, uh, VP of finance, was a guy named Don Zelm, who's done this at a bunch of other companies. I learned a lot from Don about SGNA, and I've tried to bring that forward through Novavax, where I had a great team in that finance department. Um, really, really good people. I think together we built and learned a lot. And then here at um, G1, Again, I'm really, really privileged to have a great group of people surrounding me here who have a lot of good ideas on how to do SGNA. And if I bring my ideas and their ideas, we collaborate together and, and hopefully we'll, we'll uh, all, if all, and create better ways to look at our financial information and, and use it for planning. When we come back, Buck Phillips shares his finance strategic moment. We'll be back after these words. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Buck, I want to uh, ask you our sort of our signature question, which I think you've already shared a few uh, finance strategic moments. Uh, but uh, if uh, we can uh, ask you for one more, whatever it may have been, uh, what comes to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Gosh, I think um, there's probably a lot of fun ones to talk about. Um, been involved in a lot of great financings. We've raised a lot of money over the history. But if I really think about it, one of the experiences that I take a lot of, of joy in when I think back on it probably was back at Novavax with, um, with my finance team. And we were conducting a, a clinical trial of a vaccine in an older adult population. And we were going to enroll 12,000 people in this clinical trial. And when we were trying to understand how we would budget that trial and track all 12,000 people who came into the trial under the, under the, under the clinical trial protocol and they'd, they'd have a screening visit and then they'd have their first visit for vaccinations. And then there was periodic visits from that day forward that were scheduled. Each of them had their own expense. And we were in, I think we were in like six or seven different countries and in four different currencies. And we had to figure out how to model that. And I remember working with, uh, with my finance team 
and we created this extraordinary model that actually had each clinical site, the individual costs at each site. We tracked patients based on the randomization files coming out of the randomization um, algorithms at the CROs, and we put together a model that would track all 12,000 patients through all visits with variables. Um, and that model became the basis for how we budgeted the trial and how we accrued against that trial over a several year period of time. And I think I remember that that model was never off by more than like two or three percent on a monthly and quarterly basis from its original day. Now that trial cost um, somewhere between 120 and 140 million dollars. So the ability to actually track and budget that trial was extremely important to Novavax at the time. And um, um, I remember being really proud of that because we did that. It was extremely informative to the company, and it was a team effort. A lot of great people involved in that that helped, helped us build that model. So, you know, that's where FP&A paid huge dividends and allowed us to understand how to manage our business and run our business. I, I, you know, hopefully that's a fun story. Um, it is for me because I remember all the effort that went into doing that. We uh, are quickly going to move into our mentoring round. I know I've asked you a few extra questions, so we're running short a little on time. Um, and I wanted to uh, once more have you look back, but um, the first question is intended to be uh, inspiration to future finance leaders. Um, what, what's exciting you today about finance and business after this long career, stretching back to the 90s when you were at Invesco and all the all the thoughts you had about what was going to happen or what the potential was, what is it today that you're, you know, is still exciting you about, about this business? Well, I think my perspective is coming from uh, that of a, a life scientist financier, and I think what I think is really exciting is that, you know, we have the ability today to invest in, in product development that ultimately can help thousands and thousands of people with, with diseases that that um, that that, uh, that <laughs> put people in desperate places. Um, so I think finance is not, not necessarily about ones and twos and dollars and cents when I think about finance. Finance is a different language that we speak or that I speak in the context of developing a drug. So I'd like to talk to my management teams um, and, and my development teams and Financials and budgets are simply the financial translation of the operating plan or the underlying clinical plan. It's just speaking to them in different languages. At the end of the day, we're here trying to develop drugs, we're trying to develop new products, we're trying to help people in the long term. And for me, that's that's always going to be exciting. Yeah, no, that moment in time when you stepped into the CFO office for the first time, and we touched on this earlier, but it's always worth segueing back. It's a question we have in this mentoring round. We're looking for that piece of advice that someone didn't give you. We're looking for that piece of advice you wish someone had given you as you entered that CFO suite for the first time and um, realized it, it's, it's a little bit of a different uh, – than managing a portfolio, this is going to be a different tour of duty altogether. What is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, in the life sciences industry, I think the most important thing somebody could have told me at the time, and frankly, maybe they did, and I, and my, I wasn't open to accepting it, but um, I think the piece of advice would have been that as a CFO in a company that has no positive cash flow, that has no product revenue, it's really, really easy to believe your job is to limit the spending, is to constrain and always control the extra nickel going out the door. And, and anytime somebody says, well, it would be really valuable for us to do this to create this new learning, to, you know, to your first, your first institution would say, no, that, you, you can't spend that money and we've got, you know, our runway is only X. I think it would have been really helpful for somebody to say, you're always investing. It's not spending, it's investing. You're taking corporate capital, you're investing it in an experiment that may have huge returns in the long-term product development cycle. So to think about these as investments and not just negative cash flow. Is there a, a personal habit that you believe has in some way contributed to your professional success? Could be part of your routine, whatever it might be. I don't know if um, I don't know if I have a, a direct answer to that. I do know that I'm always thinking and rethinking things. I do know that I'm always exploring ways to do things better. I always want to think about how we can do them better. Um, may not be a totally satisfactory answer, but that's is there a book you'd recommend? You know, I, I would say. Um, you know, I've, just like all of us in finance, read all the Graham and Dodds and the Intelligent Investor and all of that. I think a fun book for me that, that really helped put things in perspective for my industry and what we're trying to do is, is a book um, that maybe many of the audience would know, but it's called The Emperor of All Maladies. And it's really a historical journey into the discovery and history of cancer and the history of cancer treatments and therapies through time. And it's a fascinating read. It's not a science-y read. There's a little science in it. It's more a, it's more a storybook, a journey in, in the history of cancer. And I think that's actually one of those, those books that said, you know, trying to help people. At the end of the day, it's about the patients and helping improve their lives, the lives of the patients and their families. And, and it's been a long journey. We're not going to solve this overnight. It's going to take a long time to figure it out, and there's been a lot of history invested in it already. I think that book is a great book. It's a great choice. I think many of us, uh, well, many might have read it. I think many of us have it. I'm, I'm certainly interested. I'm going to ask you our final question, which is, finally, we're going to ask you to look forward again. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities when it comes to G1 therapeutics? Yeah, I think our priorities um, um, will be 
will be very obvious uh, uh, to all of us inside the company and many of the observers who have been following our company for a while. I think our priorities um, are to move trilocyclin um, aggressively into its next stages of development um, and to see how we can accelerate this product to, a, to, to the patients who ultimately need it. We have some very important uh, meetings with U.S. and European regulatory authorities planned for the first and second quarter of 2019, and those discussions will really help set the stage for the next steps in development for this company. And as soon as we have, you know, a greater understanding and clarity based on those discussions, our job is to go out and educate, uh, ex execute against those development plans and try and get this product to the patients as quickly as we can. Buck Phillips, thank you for speaking with us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Buck Phillips, Chief Financial Officer at G1 Therapeutics. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or, if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.